Hey, it's uh, sort of a big year for folks who follow prophecy. Uh, different things are happening this year. I'm not saying that they all mean anything necessarily, but it's, it's fun. It's the 50-year anniversary of the Six-Day War when uh, Jerusalem was reunited uh, in 1967, and so the Jews are celebrating that. So that's happening. Uh, as far as signs in the heavens, there's some significant things going on. Uh, have you heard of the Great American Eclipse? How many of you follow these kinds of things? I think it's August 21st. There's going to be a, a total solar eclipse that's going to cut across the United States. And uh, it's, a, it's a big thing. It hasn't happened in a long time. Uh, I was just reading an article on a... It's not a Christian website. Just I think it's a travel site. They think anywhere from a half a million to a million and a half people are going to try and get to Tennessee at some point. Uh, because that's where it's going to be visible. The, the, there's people who follow these things. They're eclipse watchers. And they're actually booking hotels all the way through the country to follow the eclipse. Uh, there's, uh, I, I told you on a Sunday morning not too long ago, <clears throat> there are those who are talking about this Revelation 12 sign in the heavens, the constellations that John saw in the book of the Revelation in chapter 12. They seem to be lining up in a unique way. There's an argument. I... I I'm still trying to figure out if it's unique or not. Some people say it's never happened before. Or it's only happened one other time in history. Others say it's fairly common, but um, nevertheless, it's happening. Uh, so I think I thought what we would do is shift gears a little bit on Wednesday nights and talk a little bit more about prophecy with a study of the days of Noah. And so we're going to look at the days of Noah uh, as our kind of overarching theme and just launch into some talk about uh, about those things. So uh, if you want to open your Bible tonight, we're going to be in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 6 a little bit, also over in Matthew chapter 24. So uh, let's, let's just pray and then see how the Lord would lead us. Father, we thank you for living in exciting times. Uh, Lord, of course, knowing you is the greatest piece of excitement that a person can have. We believe, Lord, that you could come for us at any moment. The rapture is imminent, Lord. At the same time, we love to see these signs of the times that uh, let us know, Lord, that you're working behind the scenes of human history to accomplish your great and glorious plan of redeeming the world, Lord, uh, away from Satan and, and uh, making it back, uh, Lord, the way that you desire it to be. And so uh, help us, Lord, as we launch into some things and uh, give us clarity and wisdom, Lord, as we talk. In Jesus' name, amen. It's going to happen first in England. The article was titled, Surgeon Behind World's First Human Head Transplant Says the Operation Will Take Place Next Year. Here's some excerpts from the article. A neurosurgeon planning to carry out the first human head transplant has revealed the daring operation could happen in the UK. Sergio Canavero wants to carry out the operation next year and believes it could lead to people paralyzed from the neck down being able to walk again. The surgeon said the UK is the most promising place in Europe to conduct the procedure after a virtual reality system that will prepare patients for life in their new body was unveiled in Glasgow last week. Russian wheelchair user Valery Spiridonov has volunteered to take part in the first operation, which would see his head frozen to stop brain cells from dying and tubes connected to support key arteries and veins. The spinal cord would then be cut repaired and fused onto a donor body and the skin stitched back together. This is for real. This is not fabricated. Leading up to the first human head transplant, 
scientists have attached the head of a rat onto the body of another. In the disturbing experiment, researchers in China affixed the heads of small donor rats onto the backs of larger recipients, creating two-headed animals that lived an average of 36 hours. The team, which involved the Italian neurosurgeon, managed to complete the transplant without causing blood loss-related brain damage to the donor. I don't know how you figure out whether a rat has brain damage or not, but, but they did. A year ago, China was ordered to rein in scientists who have edited the DNA of human embryos for the first time, a practice banned elsewhere. The first attempts to bring people back from the dead are slated to start this year as well. BioQuark, a Philadelphia-based company, announced in late 2016 that they believe brain death is not irreversible. And now their CEO has revealed they will soon be testing an unprecedented stem cell method on patients in an unidentified country in Latin America, confirming the details in the next few months. Newsweek ran an article titled, We Need to Talk About Human Genetic Engineering Before It's Too Late. They said this, Human genetic engineering is coming. Science is about to solve some of the worst problems that can happen to people. Cystic fibrosis, sickle cell anemia, Alzheimer's, and the many other devastating results that can come out of the random genetic lottery that is reproduction. But that power means we are also about to set the bar on what it means to be a person and to have a productive life. What will the society of the future think needs repairing? If we fix blindness, will we also fix deafness? What about baldness or being short? Now, I want to say that we are seeing the manipulation of what it means to be human, especially on the level of DNA, like never before in human history. I can't say that, however, because there was one other time in the history of the human race when it seems that genetic manipulation was happening, and it was happening on a planetary scale. It was about 4,400 years ago, just before the global flood of Noah, recorded in the book of Genesis, where you are in chapter 6, as Moses begins to tell the story of Noah, he introduces it this way, chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Skip down to verse 4. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now I'm going to present all the different theories as we go on in weeks to come of exactly what these verses might mean. But rather than keep you in suspense, we're going to discover that the most biblical and scientific and logical theory is that the sons of God were certain fallen angels and that these giants were the offspring of fallen angels mating somehow with human women. And in doing so, the fallen angels were messing with what it means to be human, messing with us at the level of DNA in order to distort or to destroy the human race. It was so prevalent that God decided to send the flood, saving only eight souls. This realization that we have been here before is more than interesting. It's prophetic because of something Jesus said. If you're in Matthew 24 talking about the last days, and especially the days just before his second coming. It's important, we'll, we'll talk about this next week, but this passage is about the second coming of Jesus, not the rapture. He said in verse 36 of Matthew 24, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. 
But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, and so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And by the way, there's a lot of reasons we'll see why we don't believe this refers to the rapture or to the church. One is that the flood came and took people away to judgment. The rapture is going to come and take us away to heaven. And so the picture isn't right. And so Jesus is talking about his second coming to judge the world. First of all, by the way, we note that Jesus spoke of Noah and the flood as presented in Genesis as a true historical account. If you think otherwise, then you are disagreeing with Jesus, who the book of Colossians reminds us was creator of all things. And so Jesus had no problem with the literalness uh, of Genesis and the fact that there was a global flood. Now, he said just before his coming, it would be as the days of Noah were, as in the days before the flood. And then he picked one particular aspect of those days. He said the people would be eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage. Now, typically we say of his statement that people will be unaware of his coming and they'll be going on with their normal lives. They'll be partying, they'll be getting married as if they hadn't a care in the world. I've probably said that myself. I've heard that said for years. Uh, you know, it's just, a, it's just, Jesus, no one knows when he's coming and so people just go on living their normal lives, getting married and having parties. But what is the world going to be like just before the second coming? Will it be business and pleasure as usual? Well, hardly. In the revelation of Jesus Christ, during the Great Tribulation, seven seals of a seven-sealed scroll are opened, one at a time, to reveal the wrath of God upon the earth. Things get progressively worse on the earth after each seal is opened. With the opening of the seventh seal, seven trumpets are blown. With the blowing of the seventh trumpet, seven bowls of wrath are poured out upon the earth in rapid succession, just as Jesus is returning. Now listen to how the bowls are described. This is from Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth. And a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. If you're following along, skip down to verse 8. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and on his kingdom, and it became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. It goes on to talk about the uh, battle of Revelation, the war of Armageddon, and the coming of Jesus Christ. And so question, does that sound like the kind of world in which people are going to be partying and getting married? 
Do you imagine you'll be receiving save-the-date notices and putting them on your refrigerator while the sun is scorching men with fire and while all the sea creatures are dying? You won't be serving seafood at your wedding, that's for sure. I don't mean to be uh, facetious about it, but we need to understand the context. Jesus is clearly not talking about life as usual. It won't be that. So what is he talking about? Let's revisit what Jesus said and what he most likely meant by what he said. He said, just before his second coming, men would be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, similar to the days of Noah. What kind of marriages were taking place in the days of Noah? Well, we read that. The sons of God were taking human women as their wives, messing with what it means to be human at the level of DNA, and producing monstrous atrocities called in the Bible the Nephilim. The verse actually reads there in Genesis, The sons of God, Benai Elohim, took wives of the daughters of men, which gave birth to giants, Nephilim. And so did Jesus mean this terrible mating between fallen angels and human women will occur again in the end times? I'm not saying that. I don't know that because it's not directly revealed in the end times passages. I will say that something like this seems to have occurred again on a small scale after the flood. Most commentators uh, will agree with this, even though it's not talked about very much, because it's supported by the many places in Scripture where you see giants on the earth still after the flood. For example, uh, it was partially their fear of giants in the land that caused the ten spies to give a bad report of their chances at conquering the land. There were giants in the land. And then later, the Israelites overcame those giants in their conquest of the promised land when they finally went in 40 years later. Later on still, David and his mighty men finally eradicated the giants in his day. He didn't just fight Goliath. There were other giants still on the earth in those days, and David and his mighty men finally eradicated them. And so... um, Whatever happened before the flood happened again on a smaller scale. I do know that Satan was messing around with DNA in the days of Noah and that he's doing it again today through the agency of scientists willing to ignore medical ethics. And so what I see happening isn't so much the marriage aspect of it or how it's happening as it is the result of it that there is a corruption of the human race. I mean, we have a lot of weird stuff going on right now. People trying to transplant heads and uh, bring the dead back to life, but even more troubling, messing with our DNA codes. And and, um, if the Lord doesn't come back soon, uh, I don't know what kind of a monstrous world we would live in. In in some of these countries, China, uh, for example, they have no real medical ethics whatsoever. They're just doing these things like crazy. It's the second time in human history that such a direct manipulation of DNA has occurred, the first being the days of Noah. It's not yet widespread, but that could change at any time. So it seems then that we are on the brink of the days of Noah prophecy of Jesus coming true. The days of Noah were also characterized by violence and corruption and widespread unbelief. But to suggest that, for example, the days in which we live are the most violent since the time of the flood is to ignore the human history of violence. Usually when we talk about the days of Noah, we bring up these other characteristics and we try to show how we're the worst ever. Um, 
and maybe that's true, but I, I mentioned Hannibal in Sunday's Bible study. Hannibal, I read, killed more people in one afternoon than all the losses the United States sustained in the entirety of the Vietnam War. And so the world has always been an extremely violent place. And 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 80 years ago, you could have said that it was more violent than it's ever been. And I think every generation can make that statement. Commentators have suggested other characteristics of the days of Noah. James Montgomery Boyce lists an explosion in population, an explosion of knowledge, and a rapid acceleration of vice and lawlessness. I think we can see those things in the past in our history as well. They're not unique to the times in which we live. Almost a generation ago, in 1968, Paul Ehrlich, a Stanford University biologist, wrote a book called The Population Bomb. In it, he said, humankind stood on the brink of, a cop, uh, of the apocalypse because there were simply too many of us. Dr. Ehrlich's opening statement, the battle to feed humanity is over. He later went on to forecast that hundreds of millions would starve to death in the 70s, that 65 million of them would be Americans, that crowded India was essentially doomed, and that odds were fair, and this is a quote from his book, England will not exist in the year 2000. Now, I'm not saying things are great in our world, but what I'm establishing is that some of the characteristics of the days of Noah uh, are not unique to the days in which we live. They're, they just happen all the time in history because we're a fallen race prone to things like violence and vice and lawlessness. The thing most uniquely similar between the days of Noah and today involves the manipulation of what it means to be human at a DNA level. It happened then somehow, and we'll look into a little bit of that, and it's happening now. And so um, I, I, I believe it's easy to say that we are looking at what Jesus said were the days of Noah. Uh, now remember, when he said that, He's talking about people that are in the Great Tribulation just before his coming. We're not going to see any part of the Tribulation. We're the church. We're going to be raptured and taken out of here. Uh, and, of course, that could happen any moment. But taking the church out of the equation, how close are we then to these things that Jesus talked about? Uh, and when you add some of the things that are happening this year, it's, it's just an exciting time to be studying prophecy. So for some homework... Read and reread Genesis 6, 1 through 5. If you've got a copy of Dr. Henry Morris's book, The Genesis Record, read his commentary on those verses. I mean, the whole commentary is great. It's a classic. It's one of the first Christian books I ever bought. Back, Tim LaHaye used to have a book, How to Study the Bible for Yourself. When people got saved, we would hand them that book. Somebody gave me that book, and it had in there a suggested library of books you wanted to get. And one of them was a Genesis Record, and another was Henry Morris's book, many infallible proofs, which was an apologetic about um, Christian science, and, and it was fantastic stuff. So if you've got a copy of that book, uh, read that. I just did the other day. It's fantastic stuff. And then read and reread Matthew 24, especially verses 36 through 44. You might want to read all of chapter 24 as well as chapter 25 uh, for that as well. We'll probably take a look at the days of Noah passage in Matthew the next time we're together from uh, Matthew 24, some very interesting things that we want to talk about from that. Amen?